I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things. And sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Jeff Shane and forensic expert Joseph Scott Morgan. Joseph has handled thousands of death investigations, which include over 7,000 autopsies. Joseph recently worked on the KT Studios documentary, Murdered and Missing in Montana, now streaming on Peacock. He also hosts his own podcast, Body Bags. It's available to download now. Episode 23, the case of the stepmother, the CSI team, and the Valentine's Day tragedy. At 35 years old, Greg Bower's life was going to plan. He had a great job at a pharmaceutical company and a picturesque home that sat on 12 acres. He also had two adoring children and above all, a beautiful and loving wife, Janelle. Janelle worked at a post office and the pair's combined income was over $100,000. In Scotts, Michigan, where they lived, this afforded the pair a very comfortable life. In 2013, after a quick romance, Greg and Janelle went to Las Vegas and eloped. In a white gown with her curly blonde hair, Janelle could not look happier. Both Greg and Janelle had previously been married and Greg had a daughter, Lily. Together, the couple had a baby boy. 
Greg was known as a good man and a loving father who always put his family first. Despite Janelle being nine years older than her husband, the couple had a lot in common. Their biggest shared interest was guns. They collected lots of firearms, so much so that people who saw their house said it looked less like a family home and more like an armory. But Greg and Janelle didn't care what other people thought. They loved shooting, and Greg in particular was an excellent marksman. Here's Jeff. Well, at first the whole blended family thing worked. After the couple tied the knot, Janelle started to change. Greg's daughter, Lily, said that she noticed that Janelle, who was always a bit cold, became more distant and withholding. She would literally walk past the girl without acknowledging her presence. And it wasn't just Lily who noticed it. Greg's family also saw a shift. According to them, Greg and Janelle were clingy and stuck to themselves, and not in a cute, newlywed, lovey-dovey way, but in a codependent, awkward way. Despite having been very much in love, Greg and Janelle had a rough patch that they couldn't recover from. Four years after getting married, in April of 2016, Greg filed for divorce. He cited, quote, a breakdown of the marriage relationship and filed for joint custody. Janelle was heartbroken. To her, Greg was the love of her life. Janelle contested the divorce, saying their marriage could be saved. While they were splitting up, instead of actually moving out, Greg started sleeping downstairs on the couch in what the family called the gun room. It makes me wonder if he was trying to make it work. I know she was desperate to save the marriage, so maybe that was what the goal was. But he did file for divorce, so it seems like a little bit of a mixed message. Perhaps finances came into play. Joseph, I wonder, what do you know about divorce laws in the state of Michigan? You know, in Michigan... Uh, quote unquote, a, a breakdown of the marriage relationship means that the matrimony has been destroyed. That means it, it's broken, man. I mean, it's just kind of come apart. And there remains no reasonable likelihood that the marriage can be preserved. So in light of what, what we're seeing happening, this dynamic between this couple, when you you shine the harsh light of the state law on this, it seems to be contradictory, doesn't it? Yeah, so what you're saying is, despite Greg just moving downstairs as opposed to leaving the house, the way he filed or what he filed the divorce under, citing the breakdown of the marriage relationship, at least under the law, fully means that they were never going to get back together. Yeah, and I think that one of the things you have to consider here is that in Michigan, there is no-fault divorce. It's a no-fault divorce state, which means that the spouse that's filing doesn't have to prove that the other spouse did something wrong. And, you know, this is one more interesting thing. Why would you want to still cohabitate with this individual that you've been over a rocky patch? You, you feel as though that it's all over. You've gone to the trouble of retaining an attorney, obviously, and filing divorce papers. And I think that some of this stuff comes down to territory. You know, th this is mine. I possess this. I own this. And you know, if you're in that position where maybe somebody expects you to move out, you're afraid that if you move out, if you walk through that door, you're never going to be able to come back in and maybe reclaim those things that you perceive to be yours. Yeah. And the couple also has a child together. So that probably complicates things in terms of co-parenting dynamics and finances, like you mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, when you're on this kind of slippery slope like this, I think emotionally, and there is a child involved, once you're absent from that home, if you're the parent that has to leave, you no longer have a voice. 
you're completely and totally muted at that point in time. So if your perception is, is that my spouse is going to say bad things about me to my child, there's no way that you can counter that. And it, you can imagine it's, it's very, very troubling. And what do you think, putting yourself in Janelle's shoes, she wants to make the marriage work by all accounts and Greg does not, but he kind of half leaves because he leaves the bedroom but stays in the house. I mean, don't you think that probably messes with her emotionally? Yeah, I think that it does because he's still in her orbit under the same roof. So she's holding out hope that this relationship is going to be sustained. And there's that glimmer, you know, in her eyes, at least, because he still has a physical presence in this environment. I mean, can you imagine how defeating that would be every single day? If you see this person, but and they're living under the same roof, but now they're refusing to speak to you. They won't even acknowledge you if they're passing you in the house or if they're on the way to get in their car to go to their work or whatever the dynamic is. And so it's this kind of cyclical event. And I can only imagine that it it probably causes a level of anxiety to, to rise and probably anger as well. On Valentine's Day 2017, what should have been a romantic day turned into something much worse. Janelle made a frantic call to 911. Her estranged husband, Greg, had shot himself in the head. When the police arrived, Janelle was outside waiting for them. She was nursing a bloody wound. Janelle had been shot in the arm. Paramedics quickly took her to the hospital and made their way inside to make the grim discovery. The first thing officials noticed was just how many guns were in the house. They then soon found 35-year-old Greg dead from a bullet to the head. So in route to the hospital, Janelle started talking to the police about what happened pretty immediately. She started by telling them that Greg had been abusive to her and their young son. It was one of the reasons she said that the marriage was actually ending. So they wondered, how did the shooting start? She told them she had come home for lunch and found Greg at home as well. They started talking about the divorce, which quickly escalated and they started fighting. As the conversation got heated, Janelle told Greg that she had told her lawyer about his abuse. Now, according to her, this just completely enraged Greg, and he grabbed for a gun and shot at her two or three times, and then finally himself. Police did wonder how Greg, an expert marksman, would miss hitting Janelle, who was such an easy target, but she had been shot in the arm, so she was bleeding, and they had to take her to the hospital and deal with that before they could answer any of those questions. Obviously, Joseph, you've dealt with a lot of death and tragedy in your career. What can you tell us about murder-suicides and how common that is and how that dynamic plays out? Suicides alone outnumber homicides, you know, generally three or maybe two to one. Wow. Nationwide, you just never hear about them at all. Now you introduce this other element in here, this thing that people don't think about, and it's horrible in and of itself, and that's murder-suicide, where you've got this breakdown, this dynamic is just gone into ruins and you have individuals that just decide you know I'm not only am I taking myself out but before I go I'm taking you out and you know you had mentioned my work previously as as a death investigator and you know there were three days during the year that we absolutely dreaded but it was because of the potential for suicides that was Thanksgiving Christmas and Valentine's Day because it seems like we would have an uptick, particularly Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, more so than Christmas, but we would still have them on Christmas. We could see a bump in those in those numbers. And I think a lot of that comes down to people being very sad, lonely, 
They don't feel like there's any hope. They don't feel like they have any love left in their life. So it's troubling as an investigator. It's almost like you can see the train coming at you down the tracks many times. And you know that there's the potential for that because, you know, the sadness kind of, there's a thread of sadness that runs through much of these cases like that, many of these. And then, you know, you begin to think about their home life and kind of what they were uh, interested in. And they, by all accounts, they owned a myriad of firearms. Uh, Greg and Janelle both admittedly were shooters. And I mean, like they enjoyed going out and target shooting and their home had been described uh, by some, not so much as a home, but an armory. As we know, when Greg moved out, he didn't really move out. He moved into the gun room. So that gives you an idea. So most murder suicides involve guns. And so obviously you have have any number of weapons to select from in this environment. There would be one probably at arm's length. It's easy to facilitate a death. You know, the perception is, is it's very quick and it's final. You know, it's not like somebody going to the trouble to try to figure out, well, how can I poison my lover and poison myself and it, and it work out. That's kind of a, you don't necessarily have a guarantee with that with firearms. Yeah, you do, in fact, have a guarantee. Wow. So I find it interesting that in your experience, Valentine's Day, which is when this death took place, there is actually an uptick in this type of situation occurring. So it's not just the Boer family that was dealing with this. It's kind of the universal feeling that Valentine's Day brings out in people. As it crosses the spectrum of everybody in America, I think that that we can address that. I think that because firearms are readily available, they seem like an easy answer. And then you couple that with this crushing sadness that comes along with broken homes and broken relationships and, and hopelessness. It's a dangerous, dangerous recipe. And we know the fact that the gun was involved in this. We know that nine out of 10 murder-suicides involve a gun. So again, this speaks to a pattern of a murder-suicide, as well as nearly two-thirds of all murder-suicides, an intimate partner of the shooter is among the victims. So this is a very common type of of crime. It is, and I, I like the number that you put out there because there are those outliers that are murder-suicides that are not involving intimate partners, but two-thirds of all murder-suicides involve an intimate partner. I mean, let, let's think about what's going on, and a lot of people, I think, don't necessarily contemplate this very much, but and it seems rather simplistic, but when you take up a firearm and you aim it at this person that you have proclaimed your love for, for months, years, decades, and suddenly you want to completely eradicate them, that takes a lot of emotional power and anger and those sorts of things. And so most of these cases are going to be intimates. Uh, You will have kind of the outlier cases where people that walk into work and, and they're frustrated at work And we hear about this with, you know, mass shootings many times, but there'll be people that will say target a coworker or a boss and then take their own life. But those are the outliers. You know, people are not aware of this kind of plague of suicide and murder suicide among intimates that's, uh, you know, it's wreaked havoc in America for years and years. It's just that many people don't ever report on it. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. So as we know, Janelle was shot in the arm and she was pretty lucky because the wound turned out to be pretty superficial. She would be fine. And the day after the shooting with Janelle recovering, the police spoke to her again and she provided even more details. She told the police that her and Greg were fighting and she slapped Greg across the head and he lost his mind. He yelled at her, I'm going to kill you for what you've done. She said she then karate kicked a gun out of his hand and that's when Greg grabbed a second gun and shot at her. Janelle also told the police that during the fight, she fell back, hit her head, and passed out. And when she woke up, Greg had killed himself. She continued to tell police that this was not an isolated incident, and Greg was continuously physically, emotionally, and mentally abusive to her. Joseph, I wanted to ask you about being shot in the arm and, you know, Janelle having a superficial wound. Can you tell us anything about, you know, what type of wound would you get from being shot in the arm? Is it common that it would just be superficial like that? How lucky was Janelle? If things go off the way she is actually describing them, she's very lucky to have only sustained a superficial gunshot wound to the arm. You know, you begin to think about this, though. You know, you kind of break it down logically. And what do we know? What do we know about Greg? Well, he's regarded as an expert marksman. And he's an expert marksman in the sense that he's familiar with a lot of platforms of weapons because he apparently owns a lot. What are the chances that at such close range, he is only going to be able to inflict 
a superficial gunshot wound to the arm. Now I know that what has been put forth relative to her explanation is that she did some type of martial arts move and disarmed him, but yet he was ready with another weapon at that moment in time. As an investigator, immediately, you know, I would begin to probe this a little bit and dig a little bit deeper. First off, she specifically mentioned that it was a karate move. Okay, well, I think my question now would be, what's your training in karate? You mentioned karate specifically, so please tell us, inform us about your background in karate, martial arts, self-defense, these sorts of things. What dojo are you a member of? What belt have you attained? I would want to know those, those questions probatively as an investigator, because, you know, you only get one shot at this, Jeff. You know, and our working assumption as medical legal death investigators is that every death, not some, not a few, but every death is a homicide until we can prove otherwise. So when you start telling me that you karate kicked a weapon away from a grown man and that he only superficially wounded you at very close range, remember what she also said. Not only did she karate kick the weapon out of his hand, but to start start the ball rolling with this whole thing she was close enough to slap him in his head that's close quarters at that moment in time as a matter of fact if you're proficient with a firearm all you would have to do is not necessarily take aim like people normally think of taking aim you essentially put your head over the weapon and you can fire from the hip at that range maybe three to four feet and hit somebody's center mass multiple times that didn't happen in this case As the police spoke to Janelle about the shooting, a CSI team headed to the couple's house to see if the story checked out. Using lasers, protractors, and a smoke spray, officials were able to track the bullet's trajectory. Knowing that Greg was right-handed and that he was shot in the left side of his face, what they found was shocking. According to their scientific methods, Greg could not have been shot the way Janelle described it would be physically impossible. Here's Joseph. Unfortunately, in most cases of shootings like this, we don't have rolling tape at that moment, Tom. We don't have a camera that's filming every bit of these events. So what we rely upon is what can the science tell us? And in this particular case, they did a firearms reconstruction at the scene. That means that they pulled what are referred to as bullet trajectories. So if folks at home will just kind of imagine that everywhere there's a bullet strike, the terminal strike, like where the round actually winds up. In this particular case, for instance, they actually took a laser pointer and placed it in the defect where the bullet wound up landing, okay? And then all of a sudden you can shoot the laser beam back and it will intersect hopefully at a point of origin or cross over the point of origin. Now, uh, they use something called smoke spray at, at this point in time. And kind of how this works is that the idea is you want to document the laser beam photographically. Well, it doesn't show up well if you just take a, a camera and uh, snapshots. Okay, what you have to do is you have to have a long exposure you spray this aerosol spray and it it contrasts with the laser itself. And the lasers are generally either green or red in color. Sometimes you'll use green for, say, for instance, the suspected perpetrator. 
and maybe you'll, if the uh, victim has a weapon and they fired, you might use red for theirs. And you, that way you can see where the, the projectiles may have crossed paths or the positionality of any one of the two shooters. And that's what happened in this case. They go back out and document this because you have those physical points that are static at that moment in time. And you capture those and you have to document those. And then upon completion of that, you take a look at this and say, okay, is this reasonable? Does the science that I'm documenting out here at the scene marry up with the statement that this individual has given me as to what actually happened? Remember, you've got two individuals here. Both are victims. You've got an individual that alleges that she has been superficially shot in the arm, and you've got another fellow that is deceased now. Only one of these can speak to you. The other witness is dead. So you have to see if what she is saying actually marries up with the physical science that's being demonstrated at the scene. Are these types of tests with the smoke spray and the lasers, how accurate are they? Very, very accurate. If you're trained appropriately, this methodology works quite well. And, you know, it's accepted widely in court because most of the people that, that do these kinds of investigations, that handle these kinds of reconstructions, have literally done hundreds of these, Jeff. And so they're very well practiced at it. So that wasn't all the police were doing. The coroner actually noted that there was stippling on Greg's face. Shots fired from close range leave telltale marks called stippling. These marks are discolorations of the skin caused by burning gunpowder, similar to gunpowder residue. Now the CSI team looked at the pattern of stippling on Greg, specifically how loose or tight the spray was, which allowed them to estimate how far the gun was from him when it was fired. They determined that the gun had been approximately 18 inches from his face. Joseph, 18 inches seems pretty far for a suicide. I'm holding my hand, you know, it's a foot and a half away from your face. I would think the gun would be maybe at, you know, you'd hold it to your temple, not a foot and a half away. What do you make of that? Yeah, not in all cases are suicides uh, facilitated through what's referred to as a press contact gunshot wound, which means you put the tip of the, the end of the barrel pressed tightly against the skin and that creates a seal that's called a press contact or a hard contact. Not all are like that, but a goodly number of them are. Remember, somebody that's going to kill themselves, then they are bound and determined to do this. There's kind of this rigidity that takes over with them. I've seen it at least displayed, you know, in a physical sense at the scene. Uh, people will tightly press the weapon to their head and pull the trigger. Why in the world would you want to attempt to hold a firearm 18 inches from your head and run the risk of not hitting the target? You know, you have this weapon. We assume that he doesn't have some kind of physical malady that would prevent him from bending his elbow. And we don't think he took the weapon and inverted it and fired the weapon upside down, uh, actuating the trigger with his thumb, which some people, you know, put that forward as a possibility in some cases. So if I hear 18 inches away, that's a problem. And back to this idea of the stippling and this pattern that takes place, I, I love word pictures. And so if, if our listeners will just envision a water hose that has a nozzle, a spray handle, and you can, you know, the tighter you press this down, the tighter the stream is that comes out. So the more loosely you hold it, the spray kind of widens out, kind of fans out, if you will, almost creates an umbrella appearance to it. Imagine that with 
the deposition of the soot and smoke and the unburned powder that's going onto the skin. So the more of a spread you have, the further away the end of the muzzle is from the target area. You know, and obviously the bullet is going to create a defect, you know, in the target area. That's not really going to deviate. That'll create a tight little round potentially or irregular defect, but it's tightly concentrated. The further out this spreads, this gives us an indication when we're going back to reconstruct a scene. It gives us an indication of distance. You know, powder itself and smoke is not very aerodynamic. You know, and like a bullet, a bullet spinning when it comes out, it, it maintains those aerodynamic features. Folks at home can take talcum powder and put it in their in the palm of their hand and just gently blow it, and it just kind of showers about. That's the same way with gunpowder. The further out it travels, it kind of dissipates and just floats through the ground. It doesn't have very effective aerodynamic qualities to it. Let's stop here for another break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. 
Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Is it common that investigators would go to these lengths to solve a crime? No, not necessarily. But when you couple, Jeff, what the medical examiner, coroner, told the investigators, and I guarantee you they told them this, and said, look, <laughs> this, this pathologist that did the autopsy has probably done hundreds of them. And the pathologist, I can just see them in my mind, is probably looking over a pair of glasses at them, and they're saying, you're telling me that this is, a, she says this is self-inflicted? Well, if it is, these are rarities. You know, this is something that I can put into a group I can eventually write a paper about because this doesn't commonly happen. And so when an investigator hears that and then they start to couple this idea of karate kicks and superficial gunshot wounds to the arm, which is probably going to be non-lethal in a very tight kind of combative environment, it's going to make alarm bells go off in the brains of the uh, investigators. Well, that wasn't the only alarm bell that was going off because the CSI team was also able to determine the flight path that the bullets were fired. One bullet struck them as interesting. This particular bullet had hit a door and caused fragments from the wood to fly all over the room. So not only was Greg's body covered in these fragments, but they were also on top of the coagulated blood at the crime scene. It told officials that this bullet was fired after Greg was already bleeding. The CSI team also found trace elements of gunshot residue on Janelle and Greg's hands. Joseph, I would imagine if Greg had been firing at Janelle numerous times and then shot himself, he would have been covered in gunshot residue, right? Uh, yeah, there's a high likelihood he would have been. You know, GSR tests are not necessarily reliable in every single case. However, they are reliable enough that you can get a pretty good idea as to what's happening. And what is really rare is that when you get gunshot residue on the hands of the alleged victim, that's kind of odd unless that individual literally has their hands around the weapon as it is being fired. And remember, she had already karate kicked the one weapon out of the way. He reaches for another weapon and fires that. Did she have time to recover from her karate kick and grab, put her hands in the path of, of this powder that's being dispersed by the second weapon? I think, again, that's very difficult to kind of buy into. And I love this point that you brought up. I mean, this is uh, one of the most interesting uh, facets to this case is that when someone is shot in the head, the head is, is the most vascular area of the body. That means it requires the largest amount of blood flow. When that happens, you're going to have a, not only an immediate stream of blood that will issue forth from the head at that point in time, it's almost like an arterial spray sometimes, and it'll just go all over the place, but there will be a continued seepage and it forms a big pool around the head. A lot of that's dependent upon how the head is positioned. Obviously, gravity is going to play a part in that, but it's still essential here when you begin to think about this. You've got this blood flow that's everywhere. And how keen on the part of the investigators to take a look at that and not just blow this finding off where they're they're saying, oh, well, there's shattered debris here lying about from where this round struck the door frame and it splintered the wood. And we've, we've got particulate pieces lying all about. 
that's going to give you pause because how do you explain that? How do you explain that this wood got kind of blown apart and it's going all over the room and it showers down into a non-existing pool of blood? Uh, I mean, and the wood would not float up to the top and be pristine on the top because you have to imagine if if the wood had pre-existed, okay, and the blood had fallen on top of it, the wood would probably be super saturated. And I've seen things floating in blood. It's only those areas on these fragments that make contact with the blood that will be blood stained. Ergo, the top side will not have blood on it, or there will be, if it is there, it'll only be a minimal amount. So that's a heck of a pickup on the part of the CSI team. With the crime scene pointing towards Janelle as the killer, the police tracked down Janelle's ex-husband, who told them the reason the marriage ended was that Janelle had made claims that he had assaulted her. It was something he had always staunchly denied. According to her ex-husband, Janelle actually hit herself in the face, giving herself bruises in order to make it look like she was the victim of domestic violence. At the time, nobody believed him. But now with Greg dead, police wondered if this was history repeating itself. Joseph, self-inflicting bruises on your body and eventually shooting yourself, it's a hard pill to swallow. What would it take to shoot yourself like that? Commitment. I don't think many people understand how painful this is. If you purpose to shoot yourself and you shoot yourself, you're going to feel it. And this is an excruciatingly painful event that takes place. What's amazing to me is that even though this wound in the arm is deemed as being superficial. Can you imagine how much more painful it would have been if say, for instance, the projectile had completely shattered her humerus, which is the large upper bone in the arm that even doubles the pain. So it's a real risky undertaking to say the least. And so because of all this, the police brought Janelle back in for questioning, but this time she refused to talk without a lawyer. She ended up hiring a criminal defense attorney And police wondered why a widow, a victim of domestic violence, would hire a well-known criminal defense attorney. Joseph, do you think hiring a lawyer, especially one who was known for defending criminals, is a bad look for Janelle? I think that it can be. And particularly, you know, it it doesn't necessarily matter how it, it would look to me as a civilian, but to a police officer, to an investigator that's been questioning her, if in fact she has changed her story anywhere along the path. Maybe she slightly rotated it a few degrees from where it previously was. And trust me, investigators do this for a living. They pick up on these little cues along the way. And she's seemingly cooperative all the way through this process. And then all of a sudden she lawyers up. Yeah, it's going to be a problem and it's going to be a bad luck because now at this point, police are going to put the full court press on. They're going to demand getting statements from her. They're going to dig even deeper. And there's a high probability that they're going to put handcuffs on her and arrest her at that point. Well, that is close to what happened because during the questioning, Janelle seemed to be confused at the gravity of the situation. She wondered out loud if she was dead and this was all the afterlife. The police assured her it was very much real. And as they were wrapping up, Janelle told the detectives she was going to have pizza for dinner. But instead, the cops had other plans because she was arrested. She was charged with murder and felony firearm use. At what point, as an investigator, would you raise the flag and say, something is not adding up here? I mean, because there's so many things that happened where it's like, this doesn't add up, this doesn't add up, this doesn't add up. How quickly would your spidey senses be going off? 
If I was the investigator on this case and I was the lead, once I started getting these odd cues from this individual, I would step out of the room and request that I have another investigator come in potentially and at least stand behind the window, the two-way mirror, and listen to what they're you know, what they're hearing and, and just see, you know, because what police will do is they will go over an issue over and over and over again and question. They might ask the question a bit differently, but because many times cops just want to make sure that they're not losing their mind because you can, after you've been with somebody for a while and you've been questioning them, you can get a little punch drunk at that point in time. You, you lose track in your mind if you're not taking careful notes about everything that you're doing. And also another technique is you bring the other person into the room and you kind of retreat. It's not a good cop, bad cop thing. It's just a different thing. You kind of retreat in your line of questioning towards this individual. You have another person take over, but yet you stay there and observe. And they might start asking the same questions and their eyes will be cutting back and forth between the original interviewer and the new interviewer. And they're trying to say, you know, what kind of game are they playing here? Am I going to get everything right? And then people will get very, very nervous at that point in time. And sometimes the stories don't marry up. The one that they earlier told and the one that they're currently telling. At Janelle's trial where she was facing life in prison, the prosecutors theorized that the motive for murder was fear of losing custody of her son. As the trial came to an end, Janelle ended up taking a plea deal for second-degree murder. Janelle was sentenced to 17 to 19 years in prison at the sentencing, which came almost one year to the day after he was murdered, Greg's family were able to address Janelle. Here's some audio from the courtroom. By killing my son, you've torn the fabric of my entire family. He was honest, trustworthy, dependable, and kind-hearted. He was too kind to be safe from a monster like you. I will never forgive you for what you've done. You've shattered our lives, and most importantly, the lives of Greg's children. I only wish I could trade your worthless, selfish, pathetic life for Greg's. You've stolen a good father from his children. You have taken my big brother and one of my best friends. You do not deserve to bear my family's name. You are nothing more than a sick animal that should be put down. No human being deserving of their next breath would do what you have done. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. Season three of the Piketon Massacre, Return to Pike County is in the works. We wanna hear from you for the upcoming season. Do you have a story to tell, a connection to Pike County, or is there another case local to Pike County that you can't let go of? Please email info at kt-studios.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.